I just thought about it. I can remember no one's phone number. So anyone said, ring such and such. I said, I can't. But you've known them for 35 years. Yeah, I don't know the number. You're listening to Ear, Brain, Heart, an experiment in showing up. I'm Mark Stedman, a curious individual who's always on the lookout for things to fill his brain that can make him happier, healthier and more productive. Helping me with all of this today is Stephen Dargan. Stephen helps create organisations that light people up. He's dedicated to creating happier workplaces, working on balancing joy with purpose. There's so much to get into uh, with this conversation, but it all begins with me trying to understand just where Stephen's innate sense of happiness comes from. I think what happened was that when I was younger, I was so happy as a child. Um, uh, Home life was lovely. Parents were lovely. Where I lived was absolutely just really nice. Lots of stuff going on in the community where I lived. It was an organic community that... When my parents had moved to the estate that we moved to, everybody had pretty much moved to the estate at the time. So everybody was new families. So the kids grew up at the same time. Um, the Scout Association was started at the same time as the youth club was started at the same time as the football team was started at the same time. And I was there for that. And it was just brilliant. And all the parents were very involved. There is a moment when I go back to when I'm actually at the front door of my house. And it must have been about Easter to summertime because the sun is shining. It felt warm. I could see the sun in the sky. And I could see the color of the door and I could see my mother standing at the door and I'm on my little bicycle and I must have been about six or seven at the time. And I just went, just life feels pretty damn good at this moment in time. And it's almost like I, I, I bottled that and I reference it and go back to it. So I'm thinking, like, if I felt that then, like, how can I get more of that for the rest of my life? And I've had long periods of being very content and very excited about life. And I suppose... I'm not somebody who has a story about going to a really difficult situation and coming out and finding happiness. And I haven't had that. I've just got through life um, and quite happily got through life. I just get energized by things like, I don't know, sunrises, sunsets and music in particular and travel and just experiences and people and smells. So I remember this from the film Dogma, which as a as a late teenager, I was a big fan of because it's, I mean, that's who Kevin Smith made made films for, <laughs> was people in their late teens and early 20s. Um, and there was the idea about uh, religion being like a glass, or I, I think it was like re- religion being the water inside a glass. And uh, as you age, the glass gets bigger and the same amount of liquid, you know, be it faith, be it religion, the same amount of liquid doesn't fill the glass anymore. Does your capacity for happiness change as you get older? And the same amount of liquid that we had as a kid. I have one specific memory of being, I don't know how old I was, but just being on someone's driveway, one of these sort of fairly big driveways in this cul-de-sac that we lived in years ago. And there was like three, three or four of us just on bikes and just going round and round and round this driveway. And just even then I'd registered in my mind this is awesome. <laughs> I'm having a lovely time. I'd, I'd recently had a holiday, which I'd really enjoyed. But there was just something about this, just going around in a circle and just laughing and just like, I have that memory of like, this is brilliant. Does the same amount of joy fill our glasses or do our glasses get bigger? What do you think? I think something happens maybe, um, the state of being a child, we, get it, we, we enter a state called flow a lot more um, readily as a child. So creativity, arts, just being in the present. So children are very rarely future-based, you know, especially 
when we're up to about the age eight or nine. And I, I just remember it at the age of, I think it was 10 or 11 in school, when suddenly school felt a bit more serious for the very first time. So I do remember up to that point of about 10, where school was just play or joy. Uh, and there was never any stress of coming home worrying about homework or learning a particular um, subject. But then it just seemed to get more serious about 10 or 11. As we get older, then we're told to, you know, I suppose we're told to act more like an adult, to act more grown up, stop being childish. And all the things that make life joyful is, is, is sort of, sort of semi knocked out of us or we're told not to experience it. So there's less chance for that. Uh, I think later in life, because responsibility of bills, places to live, the, the pressures of work, the pressures of life in general. But I don't think there's no stats to go to prove that there is there is the happiest sphere in life. And I, I like I always think about this. I was watching a small documentary a couple of weeks ago, and it was um, these people from the UK that were over 100 years old. So they were all born before the year 1916. So it was shot in 2016, it was. So they were about 104. Some of them were born, you know, before the First World War had started. And I just thought there was something really interesting, how a woman of 104 in particular, she was talking about this and she was going, I've just had the most wonderful life. And uh, she said, my life's just been absolutely brilliant. I'm so happy. I met a beautiful man. We got married. Sadly, he passed away when he was 70. So I said, like, he's gone 34 years. And then she started talking about, and I, and I had wonderful kids. And then I began to realize as I listened to her, when she says I had wonderful kids, it sounds like most of her kids were gone too as well. And yet she was sitting in this sort of balmy happiness and, and contentment within life and said, I've just got all these wonderful memories. I'm really taken by the the future thing of it and, and, and what you said about kids not having that sort of future sense as they get older. They're not worried about much more than dinner time um, and when they've got to come in or whatever. And that makes me wonder how much plays into our ability to enjoy things in the moment. And it's one of the things I feel like it's something that is is advice that is given often is to be able to live in the moment and to just think about the present. And it's, um, I feel like that's that's come up a lot with the the Oliver Berman book, Four Thousand Weeks. Like as as a happy person, as as I guess you are, do you is the future something that you are cognizant of? Obviously, you're aware of it's a thing, but yeah, do you think that's a part of it? See, things like like the Four Thousand Weeks for anybody who doesn't know is is the average age or lifetime of everybody, and when you put it down into weeks suddenly everybody begins to go, oh my God, I never thought of it like that. Feels so finite, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you suddenly realize your age and you go, actually, I'm past the halfway point on this. I'm, I'm going down towards the, the 4,000 a week and heading towards that direction. And that becomes, yeah, quite finite when, when we do look at it like that. And when we're just thinking about all the things that we wished we'd done in life or haven't done in life, it is a hard one. The thing that, that for me, like I'm brilliant, fun to be around. I'm, I'm fantastic once I'm well. <laughs> Once I'm healthy and I'm well and the knees aren't shaking and I don't have a fever and I'm, I'm, I can do all the stuff like run around, play frisbee and all the stuff that I enjoy to do, I'm brilliant fun. You catch me when I'm ill, I'm a different person. So yeah, I think a lot of it is to do with our health too, as well as we get older. Like, you know, um, and if suddenly we feel that all the things that we liked to do or enjoyed doing, we can no longer do, the worst that gets, I, 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 maybe that can play in on people. But I think, yeah, the problem is we live in a world um, now where it's very difficult to stay present. And I talk to companies about this and I ask this question, if you were to press a button right now, and as you press that button, you had to keep your finger on the button till all the material from the internet was downloaded. 
I asked people, how long do you think that would take? I mean, it, obviously it depends on your broadband speed, but I would imagine it would outlive your, mm-hmm. you, it would probably outlive your lifespan. Yeah. So I get lots of people saying stuff like, oh, well, two years, three months, two, two years, five years, yeah. 10 years. It's actually 181 million years. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's <laughs> the only reason I, you know, I'm, I'm probably less fun to, to answer that question because, uh, yeah, I, it's it's the thing of YouTube. I can't remember what they say. It's, so, I think, some number of years worth of content are uploaded every day. I, I am staring, uh, funnily enough, uh, directly um, behind you as i look at you is uh, an infographic that i made uh back in 20 i think actually 2013 20, uh, yeah and it's 2.5 quintillion and it's it's a it's a measure of uh, the amount of content that that goes up it's sort of depicted in lots of different ways and yeah it is something that that i i think about but i i love that in terms of yeah, if you sat and tried to like if you were on backup duty for the internet so i'm what i'm saying is that most of that information is pointless and useless, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's distracting us to the point of we're not being very present anymore. No. And the difficulty is that we're not enjoying, like, um, I, when, when I think about it, oh God, it was, was, I wonder, was it in 4,000 weeks? Was it that Oliver pointed out that some people, it was another article I was reading where people were actually going to uh, an art gallery and they had on the iPad that they had in front of them, they were looking at the picture that was in front of them, but they were looking at an iPod with the description of what it was rather than looking at the actual piece of art in front of them. Then they were moving on as quick as they could to the next one to try and get through all of the artworks as quick as possible. I have without, to see all the art. Yeah, without being fully present for it. And apparently there's a, a really good exercise that I, I haven't done, but I heard it's really good. And it's recommended that if you stand in front of a piece of artwork for up to three hours and you just stare at it, Maybe three hours might be a long time and you've got to tell security you're going to be doing that before you actually start doing that. And they have to remove that guy who hasn't moved for three hours and they're scaring everybody else in the room. But I think the idea of that getting so enveloped and seeing things from a different angle, from a different shade is a very present experience. I know there was an example of an exercise that was done a few years ago. I think you would get people to sit down and they would hand them a rose. And with the rose, they would put it in their hand, but they would have to for 45 minutes just stare at the rose. And there's various different degrees what happen, simply like looking at the artwork. There's amazement at first or excitement at first and then boredom and then all these other things. But you have to break through it. And something like in the 30th minute, suddenly the shades of the rose began to change. And there was there was a connectedness coming and there was things that you were seeing and experiencing and being one with uh, in that experiment. And I like the idea of that because we don't do any of this enough. Louis C.K., the comedian, I, I, you can anything you like about Louis C.K. But he was very funny. I remember seeing him once um, talking about like, you know, we don't have the amazement of life anymore. Like we're sitting on a plane, we're flying to another part of the world, you know, and we're sitting there giving out, oh, the Wi-Fi is terrible. There's no Wi-Fi in this plane. And he's pointing out, you're 30,000 feet in the air, sitting in a chair, flying 500 miles an hour through the sky. That's amazing in itself. And yet you go, no, there's no Wi-Fi. You're complaining that you you don't have the access to all of human knowledge and experience that's ever existed (laughs) (laughs) because you usually have it in the palm of your hand. And now you're annoyed that it's a bit slow. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, yeah, completely. So I think that's what's beginning to happen. Uh, And I think we're beginning to revert back to that ever so slightly. The last couple of years, specifically when we were kind of isolated, we found the, um, the joy in very simple things. I don't know. Uh, about where you lived, Mark, but certainly for a lot, lots of it around here in Ireland, there was a 2K limit on where you could walk. So suddenly I found I, I'm only allowed to walk two kilometers from my house. 
So I had to fall in love with the area that I would have just jumped in my car and bypassed because it was so close because I was always going somewhere else. And I was walking up these cul-de-sacs and, you know, walking by these houses and suddenly recognizing somebody has an orange door. Who has an orange door? This guy bought an orange door. He didn't paint it. It's an actual composite orange door. I said, wow. And then there's another house that has a purple door and all these simple little things that I became very familiar with in my small little 2K surroundings that I got real joy in. The staring at the rose thing for 45 minutes reminded me of a thing I'd, saw, I'd seen a, in a Darren Brown Netflix documentary or Channel 4 thing, whatever it was, ages ago. And one of the bits they got to do was got two people who were diametrically opposed. I think it was um, someone who perhaps harbored less than charitable views towards another race and a member of that race and got them to just stare at each other for uh, I don't don't remember how long it was. It might only have been fifteen minutes, but to not say anything and just look in each other's eyes. And the less than charitable fella broke down in tears um, after looking at this this guy in the eyes because he saw the human behind this this idea he'd broken uh, he'd had in his head about you know whether it's Muslims or whatever this this sort of idea that had been composited from lots of other pieces of you know false information or assumptions or whatever and it all collapsed as he just looked at this person in the eyes and there was uh, i heard today a michelle obama quote that's something along the lines of hatred doesn't survive when it's close up i know i'm getting getting it wrong but it's like you can't hate someone at close quarters i don't know if you've had a chance to read Ru- rutger bregman's uh, humankind and Rutger is a Dutch historian and he, he's written a brilliant book on, on, on humankind. And what it is, is it basically posits the idea that until the Ice Age happened about 15,000 years ago, I think it was, and it was the first time that man settled was just after that when we found these, these fertile lands in the, um, the Nile Delta up in North Africa. That was the first time we actually stopped and we began farming and agriculture came into play and we created little boundaries and flags and all this kind of stuff in the world as we know it began to develop. Before that, if you go and you look at cave paintings from beyond that, from before that period of time, there is no depiction of war whatsoever in any of them because there was no concept of war. Because we didn't have boundaries and flags, nobody fought over anything. And he said, what, what would actually happen, he said, in, in those, that era is that because we were um, nomads and we would all travel from various different parts of, that's what we did all the time because nobody was stuck to one, one particular place. Because you had to meet people all the time, there was a, a, an element of us, we needed to be kind because we didn't know exactly what we'd need off these people and we needed support and we needed um, a connection because we might meet them again. So that's the way we were before. It's only when we, we created that that boundary around a particular piece of land, stuck a flag in it and said, this is ours, not yours, that that's when the idea of war came into place. But he also brings it a bit further because you're talking about disconnection and connection. And what we have discovered is he, he goes to point out that in the First World War, that story that we hear um, that in 1914 on the very first Christmas of the first year of the war, yeah, in the trenches, this is a true story that there was the, what actually happened before that was Christmas was about to happen. There was some social cues being emitted back and forth between the Germans and, and the, uh, the British soldiers. And what it was, was there was a human respect. OK, so most of those trenches were only hundreds of meters apart, even less. OK, and there was a respect that when it was dinner time or, or you know, it was meal time uh, for the British soldiers, the snipers from the German 
um, side would not shoot because it was respect that 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 eating dinner is a, is a human thing. And the same went on the other side for the British, for the Germans. And also when they knew the weather was particularly wet and really bad and it was it was just horrific, there wouldn't be bombardments and there wouldn't be snipers then either. So the, the, these small little cues were sort of being sent out, little respect because we were close to each other. So what actually happened in 1914 was then on Christmas Day, you've heard about the buildup where one guy walks out onto the no man's land and then there was a German soldier then and they, they had a conversation. They shared pictures of their, their kids and their wives. and They talked about home. And then before you know it, the other soldiers began to meet in the center too as well. And they all began to, you know, could see something common between them. And they all agreed at that moment that if the war ended today, they'd all gladly go home because they were the guys who didn't design the war and wanted to happen. And apparently the, the senior um, leaders based in London and in Berlin, when they heard about this, uh, they sent a bombardment in, I think it was the following day, and they ensured that in 1915, Christmas Day, that there was going to be none of this peace or truce. Uh, and they, they sent a bombardment in on that day too as well. What I'm saying there is the disconnection is that the guys in London, the leaders in London and the leaders in Berlin were disconnected from the humanity of what the others were seeing in each other's eyes above the trenches. That's why the best teams when it comes to the working environment are the ones that have really close contact. Navy SEALs, Pixar, lots of organizations like this are really good at creating what we call psychological safety, where people feel they're really valued as human beings. And that works in all good communities, tribes um, and societies. I suppose when we see this, the things that we can do online, if I'm sitting in a bedroom on the other side of the world, people can be as hateful as they want to be someone thousands of miles away because you don't get to see or feel the experience that they're going through by the hurt or the hate or the comments that you're making. But when we're very close, that ends. So there's something to be said for, for connection and community and being around others and being very close. When, when you mentioned the idea of um, we're not going to see these people again, there's something that, that really pinged in my, in my brain there about one of the times when I was on holiday in Florida, we were on one of the on a tour bus or something, and the guy who was um, sort of emceeing—I don't know what you call the tour guide, yeah, the, the tour guide on the bus—was um, trying to encourage everybody to sing along and do some stuff. And and his his sort of thing was like, "Don't worry, you'll never see these people again." As a, as a as a thing to you know, don't be embarrassed; you'll never meet them again. And so a corollary co- corollary to that is the idea in like show business where you sort of you meet people on the way up and the way down, you know, so you want to be nice to people on the way up because you'll meet them on the way down. And we're not thinking about that enough. And I, I'm so guilty of this. And, and I'm having more conversations with people that are helping me address it, of being very strident and having my sort of righteous, you know, particular opinions about things. And it's not that they're wrong, but it's also, it's, it's more that it's so easy to have those opinions at a distance and i and I, I don't know if if we can just pin it on the pandemic the the isolation i feel like we've been we've been isolating ourselves polarizing ourselves since i mean i i can think of it 2016 feels like a real beginning moment where so many things became so polarized and so the opposition's became so vehement um and it was online but then it's the, the the scary thing is how those things then become real they we we take to the streets and and then we're in close quarters and then and then a different kind of energy happens i, oh, I don't know i know exactly where you're going with that what's really interesting is 
you know, therefore, by the grace of geography, there I go. And it's really down to where you're born in the world. And, you know, if I was living in a different part of the world, I'd probably have different beliefs and different values about the way I see life. And it's not down to, it's just down to the geography of where I live. We're also got also inbuilt is these unconscious biases that we have. And it's one of the things I do talk about when we deliver programs, when I deliver programs, is that these unconscious biases weren't created by us. They are there. They're created by the society you grew up in. So I've done these unconscious bias tests. You can do them at harvard.edu as well. They are about 120 questions. It really gets to the nub of what's, you know, your biases are, to, are, are towards. I'm more biases towards um, young people than old people. So maybe that's just the way I see fitness or the things I like to do. I don't know. Maybe it's because I lived in, uh, in Ireland that probably would have seen people age quite quickly and probably wouldn't have put as much premise on older people. I would have seen my grandmother in her 50s look very old and it was just the way it was. So maybe in my head, older people are seen this way, maybe TV perceived them this way and it just filtered into me. I'm also a coach of a team, uh, uh, an all-inclusive rugby team kids. They're, uh, they're physically and, 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 and mentally challenged kids. Um, and I coach them and I've done this twice, the um, able-bodied, very, very dis- versus disabled. Um, and I am biased towards able-bodied people, even though I've done this twice. And I know that those uh, unconscious biases have probably come from me growing up in Ireland uh, in the time I did. There wouldn't have been um, many TV presenters or any TV presenters like you see on CBBs now. You know, you'll see that. But me growing up, there wouldn't have been any body with a disability on on TV are rarely ever seen. And maybe society was a lot different and those biases would have garnered, uh, what w- w- would have fed into those biases I have now. Doesn't mean those biases don't go away, but I'm, at least I'm aware of them. That's interesting because my primary school was, uh, was, a, was a school for people with visual impairments and it was part of a, a group of schools that dealt with different needs. So directly opposite me, there was a school for the deaf and then there was a place called i think the conduct of education and that was for different abilities so by dint of that but also by luck of where i lived a few doors down from me we had uh, a lad with down syndrome which was my first encounter with someone with down syndrome and i think i remember um meeting my first deaf adult it was a mum of one of the kids who was in our so we grew up me and my brother and our little family grew up with with a certain amount of understanding of of difference and that i think that close quartersness of it it takes it away from the theoretical and makes it real and then makes that that empathy even more accessible i guess yeah and if you want to um lose any unconscious biases that you might have the best way in many ways is to surround yourself with people that you have that bias against as, uh, as well. It's seen that. And I think Rutger Bregman talks about it. Daniel Coyle talks about it in Culture Code too, as well, about the importance of surrounding yourself uh, with people of lots of diversity. And the, the, the more you do that, the less, um, the less of those biases will come through. I, I suppose my happy life is simply down to geography and where I was born. Um, there might have been other factors that play into it, but I could have could have quite easily been born in other parts of the world, which which I find also find quite interesting. Is uh, I don't know if you know the World Happiness Report comes out every year, Mark, and it comes out in about March twentieth of March, twenty twenty two, and. And the one thing I love when I look, look at that, I love the way the different countries yo-yo up and down. But I'm always fascinated by why the countries that, that are top of the list are top of the list and why the countries that we think should be top of the list aren't top of the list. Um, but um, 
as I'm Irish, we're 13th happiest country in the world, which I'm very proud of, um, considering the history that we've we've experienced. And when poverty wasn't far from our door, even only 60 years ago or 50 years ago, um, it's quite an interesting place to be too as well. How do you, you specifically, spread happiness? I think it's I think it's better getting excited about life. And I and I think we need to have more of that. And I have a firm belief that life doesn't need to be the way we think it is. We're very caught up in this ideals that as we become adults, we have to behave a certain way and we have to get more serious about stuff. Uh, we have to follow lots of rules and regulations. And it's the playfulness that I enjoy in life. So the things that I do enjoy Life. I can see that you've got musical instruments behind you. I do love to play guitar. Um, I'm not very good, but that's okay. And there's a playfulness in that. And then frisbee is my favorite sport outdoors. I just love playing frisbee. And I think there's just something freeing. Once there's no wind, it's great fun. And it just feels really sort of freeing. Give me a flat piece of ground and a couple of good friends. And I could spend hours playing frisbee. One of the things I, I'm good is enthusiasm for things in life. As I talked before, I get excited about smells. I get excited about going to concerts. I get excited about a piece of music. I get excited about an ice cream, the simple things. And I think we need to have more than that because the world of distractions, the 181 million years of information that's taking us away from the joy of life, even though I struggle like anybody else with disconnecting from my phone for long periods of time, there are moments when I've had a complete feeling of disconnection. Good example of that, Mark, would have been in 2013. It was the year my dad passed away. And um, I had always wanted to do something for a number of years. I did. Um, I'd always wanted to walk across Spain because we know that there's the pilgrimage of the, the Camino de Santiago that's been going for 1,100 years. And it wasn't for a religious reason or anything. It was just something that I wanted to do as a challenge to myself. I'm quite spiritual in the fact I love the connection to, to lands and the connection to people and the connection to something that's ethereal that's out there but i believe there's there's some sort of connection to some universal feeling and i i remember doing that walk um it took me five and a half weeks or so to to, to do to walk because it's 800 kilometers but that experience of just being so connected every day i had a six kilo backpack on my back with just two pairs of shorts two pairs of socks two pairs of underwear a toothbrush a razor and a bar of soap and toothpaste and that was it and i just started to walk and it was just every step was all i, I could almost remember every single step it was just the, the next moment was just the next step. So there wasn't any wide or big, big thought what's, what's in the future. I disconnected from technology and I just was so connected to the experience that I was having. By the time I got to Santiago uh, de Compostela uh, five weeks later, um, I just broke down in tears when I arrived into the, into the, into the square there uh, in front of the cathedral. And that connected feeling that I had from that, actually it lasted. I came home to Ireland um, and 10 days for 10 days, I never turned on the radio or turned on the TV. I was still in that say, state of joy, complete bliss. It was, and it actually lasted for two and a half weeks after I finished my walk. I've never experienced anything like it in my life. And it reminded me of somebody who was on that walk as well. Somebody was saying to me that there, she was, I think she was Danish and, uh, she'd gone to the doctor and, uh, she said, I think I'm depressed. Uh, what can you help me with or what can you give me? And he said, I'm not going to give you anything, but I'm saying if you walk across Spain on the Camino and he gave her a pamphlet, I said, this could change your life. And um, she did. And, and it did. Which really brings us so neatly back to where we were near the beginning about having nothing but the immediate, having nothing to worry about other than yeah, like putting one foot in the other, uh, in front of the other, and maybe, you know, 
how can I get a bite to eat and then lay my head down for for the night and then you know I'm back on it tomorrow. I've also been thinking about uh, uh, sort of as you mentioned the the backpack, this idea of the beliefs and the the perhaps the biases, but the but the things that trigger us, the things that cause conflict or cause whatever within ourselves or with other people that I'm starting to think of them as can we carry those can we think of those things as things that we carry like uh in a backpack rather than things that are part of us innate in us if we think about being able to have more connections being able to be to spend time with people not just on the internet that means coming into contact with people with whom you have differing beliefs or, or disagreements. But I love this idea that can we take the things that, that we think of as our core values or our core ideas and rather than be things that, that are on our body and when they are attacked, we feel like we are attacked and instead just wear them on a backpack and be able to take that off or even take bits out of the backpack and maybe... If, you know, uh, maybe we can share what's in our, our backpacks. You know, we can take these little bricks out and we can examine them and go, does that brick need to be there? Actually, I could see a bit of your brick and, and we can exchange and then put them back on our backpack. Because it's not saying, why can't we all just get along? It's acknowledging there are going to be things that make us unhappy. There are going to be things that, that cause conflict. But we can manage that. There's a way to manage that. I think that's really, really interesting because um, we get called so caught up in our own dogma or whatever you know that we think what we see is real and what we think is real when that's nothing it's something very freeing and liberating to say i don't know and i think the more i begin to tune into that i haven't having the clue or i don't have the right answers the more free i feel but when i get bound by the beliefs and values that i think are definite well then that causes problems because i don't have answers and i'll never listen to anybody's point of view on this i was just really thinking about there mark when you're talking about staring into somebody else's eyes i know there is a an experiment that anybody wants to try this with with uh, if you can sit another person in front of you preferably uh, whatever one of the sexes that you're attracted to sit across them and apparently there's 32 questions that you can ask. I don't know if you've heard of this. There's 32, 32 questions that apparently by the end of the 32 questions, you finish the 32 questions back and forth because it takes a good hour and a half to do this. And then you just stare into each other's eyes for three minutes. And then apparently you've just fallen in love with the other person. Apparently this works. And there's been lots of uh, sort of studies done on this. I, I used to do a version of it as, a, as a, a bit of a networking tool for people. I'd explain what it was beforehand but we do it in a roundabout way. We just move around people. But I think it's a really interesting one. It is how when we really, because we never really ask the deep questions. We never look into each other's eyes for long enough. We don't make those connections with other people. Everything is quite awkward and transitory. And when you think about it, there's something freeing. What, like, what, what, what does happiness become then? You know, What is happiness? Happiness is having a sense of purpose and a sense of pleasure in life. You can't just have pleasure in life because you won't have happy. That's, that's hedonic. Because if there's no sense of purpose with that, that sense of pleasure afterwards just becomes completely boring. If everything was going to be pleasurable that you got a chance to do, that goes. Then purpose can be also very boring in the fact that you have no pleasure in your life. So you've got to get a mix of those two, two things. I think it's Tal Ben-Shahar. 
he talks about this in happiness. There's a thing called the hedonic treadmill, which, which is the rat race archetype, which is most of us get caught up in this in life. And it's the idea that we have present detriment. So we put off happiness now in our life because we commute back and forth to work as we have been doing before the pandemic, back and forth to work, um, working long hours in the factory at a work of place place of work. Then we come back home and then we just talk about retirement. So you spend your whole life. It's called present detriment for future benefit. So the idea is you do those long hours, you do that long commute, but in the future life is going to be better. I was a, a manager of uh, a team of people. There's about 50 people in the team. And we had long conversations. People talk about how they were really looking forward to retirement. And I would see some people take their retirement on my team or whatever, you know, and then I'd get a call six months later to say, Sean has had a heart attack, specifically men would have a heart attack, had a stroke or whatever it might have been. And they never got to experience, my own father included, never got to experience uh, retirement. So that's not happiness. Happiness is seen as uh, doing things in life that give you future benefit and they also give you present uh, benefit. So you've got them both. So something you feel like the work that we do because you love what you do as much as I love what I do as well. So, so the benefit is in the work that we do every time. So we're feeling that present benefit, but there's a future benefit too. Is it's enhancing our life. It makes us feel good. And that's what we need to have more of in life. And I think that's where we've come to now. And the idea of people have discovered this from remote working, they're feeling a bit more of the present benefit from working at home, being in more control, greater autonomy. And they turn their laptop off at the end of the day and work has ended. There's no jumping in a car or a tube or a train to get home. And suddenly they're feeling a lot more sort of connected with life. If I were to posit something uh, for, for, the, for the sake of the argument, for the sake of having the discussion, I wonder if anyone is listening and thinking about... So perhaps this will be something you identify with, with, with your particular upbringing. From my particular upbringing, I think I identify with it as well. The inherent sense of guilt that can come along from pursuing happiness and mm. well i mean on one side you've got like the yes that you know things should be hard work should be hard because that's for whatever reason that's what we've been told but also th there is I, I don't know maybe among some people an idea that happiness is somehow selfish yeah i, I hate when people use language like that work should be hard mm -hmm. uh, it's a battle in the in the boardroom <laughs> All that language is pretty crap. And I don't think we should be working as long as, uh, as we are, or as, as, as hard as we are. Uh, I'm, I like, I'm liking the new revolution when it comes to work. The likes of, um, I know Andrew Barnes has written the four-day week, and uh, Andrew Barnes would have been a guest, and I run a happy workplace conference here in Ireland. He was a guest. He's based in New Zealand from a company called Perpetual Guardian. 250 people work for this insurance company. And in 2017, they decided that they wanted to improve the lives of the people that worked in the organization. So they posited the idea of um, a four-day week. They did lots of research before it. It wasn't something that jumped into straight away. A lot of uh, getting all the employees together to be able to, to find out what's, you know, what were people's grievances if, if this went ahead, what difficulties might be might be there, what roadblocks. And since 2018, they've gone into the world of a four-day week. And here they are, 2022. And Andrew now consults. I know he's consulting Unilever in um, New Zealand uh, about them doing that. So I think we're beginning to realize that work isn't everything. And if we suddenly do something like give people, say, a four-day week or a shorter working week, like there was a fear years ago that people would end up 
protesting on the streets because they had free time to protest. But that's not the case. When there's less time spent at work, there's more time for communities to grow and for people to give back, volunteer into society uh, to pursue other things that give us a sense of joy, to spend more time around our family. I don't know what life was like for you growing up, but certainly for me, my dad worked, would have worked very long hours and he would have used all the spare time that he had to, to spend time with us. But still in all, they were very, very long hours in that. And I'm sure there's Bronnie Ware is a palliative care nurse and she's Australian and she spoke, speaks about the five regrets of the dying. And the one top regret that every single male patient that was just about to pass away had said to her was, I wished I spent more time with the people I loved doing the things I enjoyed rather than working. And that's a really sad state of affairs when we get to the last stages of our life to realize if I got a chance to live it over again, I would do it completely different. So in the present, at this moment of time, we need to start rethinking the way we have structured life. And I think we need to work less, whether it's four days, whether it's a six-hour day. And I think this is a very small snowball that is going to get bigger and bigger. And if you were to talk to me again in five years' time or to 10 years' time, you'd find that a lot more of us are working shorter, enjoying life a lot more. Like we have all the stuff in place. I don't know if you know about UBI, universal basic income. I think we might've spoken about before the whole idea that there is enough money out there. It's just in different hands. And the problem is because we're tied to financial constraints. That's the problem why we can't really live our lives to the full because you can't suddenly change your job. If you're working in the supermarket or as the waitress um, and you're trying to pay the bills because if you leave the job, you can't afford to go back to college or university to be able to retrain yourself and find a new career. But universal basic income is the idea that is, say, if we were all paid 800 pounds a month or 800 euros a month or 1,000 euros a month, whatever, you know, and there was no questions asked, it gives you the freedom then to be able to make choices in life that you wouldn't normally be able to make. And it also does something brilliant. It also gets rid of what we call the social welfare system. So we could scrap social welfare, get rid of that and just don't ask questions. So we need to look at ways to be able to embrace how people can feel better about themselves, not just in the workspace, but how societies can become better. Because if I'm working a four-day week or if I'm working for an organization that makes me feel happier about myself for whatever, this filters into my family, my relationships, my society, my community. Well, this, this podcast is what I call an experiment in showing up. And that means me experimenting with how I show up, but also having discussions about how we show up for the people that we want to lead or serve. And one of the things that I come back to is if we are unhappy, if we are frazzled, if we are a mess, uh, if we are overworked, then we can't show up in our best ways because all we end up doing is the bare minimum or the, the absolute necessary to just get through the day. Because the, the idea of that universal income, the, having a bit more of a sense of being able to unclench, just being able to unclench for a bit, having that freedom to, to, to breathe. Going back to one of the first things you said, actually, is I'm quite a happy, I'm, I'm a lot of fun to be around, but catch me when I'm ill and I'm a different person. I feel exactly the same when it comes to sort of psychological safety or just safety in general. If I feel, when I feel at my safest, this is why I've been able to, the lockdown isolation has allowed me to completely pivot my work into what I do now, which is working face-to-face -face with people and, and coaching them to make great stuff. And I can do that because I'm sat here from a place of safety and a place of, I've got things around me. I know the environments, I feel good. And with that, from that space, I can breathe 
and put my oxygen mask on before helping others. I'm off to two conferences in the next two weeks, and that's in unfamiliar territory with un- people I've never met before. And I will be a very different person. And really, there's no advice there, but really just to acknowledge the importance of being able to give ourselves that space and how to get back to the question of like whether it's selfish, how unselfish it is, because it is the, the, the idea of putting your oxygen mask on before helping others, that it does give you that space then to, when you are calmer, when you are more at ease, you can be of more use you can be more purposeful if you're on a four-day work week like it all ties in if you're doing the four-day work week you can spend that time because i reckon anyone who does it for the first however many few months they probably just you know spend it going to the cinema seeing friends shopping whatever give it some time and i imagine then they're thinking how can i use this time um because purpose is important to us because of of that sort of that balance you were saying about purpose and I guess that the contentment that comes after just like your walk, doing the walk and then getting to the cathedral. And that's it. And Andrew Barnes talks about this. Actually, one of the biggest issues was his company was the four day week doesn't mean Fridays or Mondays off. It's either you can get a Wednesday or a Tuesday or Thursday. And people are saying like, what am I going to do with a Wednesday? What am I going to do with a Wednesday off? And he said, you only need to come back after five weeks to ask the people the same question. And they went, Oh, oh this is brilliant. So they got themselves, people self-regulate and they got that sorted out in no time at all. Yeah, we're creating a world that is very stressful or just feels more stressful than it needs to be. And when you think about all the advancements of technology and all the brilliant breakthroughs that we've had to make what seems to make our life easier, it just feels like we're more overwhelmed now than ever before. Like I only talked to you this morning about the fact my battery in my smartphone was going and then the panic that I got from, my God, if the smartphone battery goes, how my life is going to fall apart. And you think, really, is your life going to fall apart if you stood back from it and think it probably isn't, but it's, it's imagined in our heads or it's been created so that this becomes bigger than we, we, we think it needs to be. And I think we need to have more, more time to be able to, to, to stand back. The problem is that we're scared of boredom. And that's one of the things that breeds into unhappiness is this fear that if we sat down and just had a, just a chance to be able to sit with our thoughts and that something terrible might come into our head and we'd feel worse at the end of it. And that's it. Ask any teenager. They, no, nobody wants to have that. So the minute we do is we fill it with um, our smartphone. So we pick up our smartphone, we look at Twitter, and we probably feel worse anyway, uh, just by even looking at that. I think there's a thing that happens in the mind called DMN, default mode network, which happens when we daydream. And we're not allowing that process to happen because a part of your brain is really good at being able to sort out problems for yourself. Unconsciously, it's working on your behalf. To We do it in the sleep state when we enter a very deep state of sleep. And we also do it when we allow our brains to daydream and just wander. But we don't allow that to happen. We corrupt it by picking up our phones. Or the, at this moment in time, we're not getting enough sleep. Um, as Netflix, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, would have said, the biggest competitor that Netflix has is, is the fact you dare to go to sleep. You're annoying us. <laughs> so that's why they play. They created the autoplay button. So you've got 11 seconds to decide whether to watch an extra hour of whatever it is you're watching or wake up refreshed the next morning. And most of us will go for the extra hour and then wake up tired the next day and go wonder why I'm not on f- running on full cylinders. And that's the case in so many ways. Yeah, the, the world of distractions, if we just if we just let ourselves just connect more with life or whatever, you know, and connect more with people and disconnect with technology, even though I'm a, I'm a futurist and I have a house surrounded by technology, I like to think I control it. You'd think I would, wouldn't you? Rather than it controls me. Even the fact that you and I are having this conversation here 
and you're based in the UK and I'm based here in Ireland and we're looking at screens and we've got mics that I have no idea. You know how all this stuff works. I have no <laughs> idea. I'm just amazed by it every time I turn on my laptop and see this. We need to have more amazement in our life, don't we? A bit more wonder, a bit more whimsy. That's it. Yeah, even the, the, the cup of coffee that you have in the morning first thing, just to even think about like where that came from. Like it came from thousands of miles away, whether it's it's Northeast Africa or whatever, you know, or South America. Somebody picked it by hands. It grew in the sun before it was even picked by hand. And then it was, you know, all the, the processes that it got to your coffee cup. And then I press a few buttons the night before. And then when I wake up, it's ready for me. And all I've got to do is pour it. So this is Stephen Dargan. What a, a font of happiness and wisdom and knowledge and yeah just a just a, an absolute uh, resource um with a capital resource uh, you will find links to so many things in uh, in the show notes there in your app right now so do have a look through those because there's just there's so much to explore from our conversation so listen i won't keep you very long we'll we'll get back into it in just a tick but yes if you would like more of this and if you'd like uh to hear about um, my approach to the kinds of work that we're talking about, how we show up for people, how we create uh, work that is meaningful and is important and impactful. Some of those conversations we're going to get deep into in the in the coming weeks. We we're talking about disability and ableism and sort of a, a degree of righteousness and standing up and so there's there's a lot of a lot of that stuff but I really want to make sure that we are armed with joy as well as with that sense of purpose so if that is uh, interesting to you then earbrainheart.com is the place to go do uh, follow the podcast if you haven't already and uh, if you have any thoughts or any feedback if there's anything that's really tickled your brain stem in this particular episode then uh, do feel free to drop me an email. Mark at origin.fm is the place to do so. So as I say, links to Stephen and all of the the things that we've discussed are in your app right now and over on the website as well. So do check them out. But that's quite enough ado. No more ado. Let us return to this conversation with Stephen. There's a really good website if anybody wants to look at it called Gapminder. And what it is, is, it's really started by a guy called Hans Rosling, who was a Swedish statistician. Um, and he does some of the most amazing TED Talks. He's got about four or five TED Talks. He's sadly passed away about three years ago. But Hans Rosling has these amazing stats to prove that life is far better now than you think it is. So what I actually do is I do with, uh, with groups, I get them to ask answer a series of seven questions. I give them about an ABC answer that they can have. And it's like stuff, do you think that, Poverty, um, which means not having enough food to eat uh, for the day, has doubled, remained the same or decreased by half. Questions like that I ask with groups and I get them to stand in various different parts of the room. And um, every single time I do this exercise, they get it completely wrong. They all think the world is worse than it is, more fearful it is and uh, more dangerous than it actually is. Um, so it's our concept. We have a thing called negativity bias. It's in the brain and it's there as a survival mechanism. It's great when we're hunter-gatherers. We now go to Tesco, Safeways or Sainsbury's to get our food. We don't need uh, you know, to hunt for our own food. So those threats are different. So we manufactured lots of threats and Twitter is one of them. And we see it's constantly filling us with threats. The news is constantly filling us with threats. And you'd be amazed to find out that if you didn't watch the news for seven or eight weeks, the world would still turn and you'd still be alive and everything would be okay. The reason I have such a hard time getting off Twitter 
is because I feel like that's where people are. And if I'm not on that particular app, I, I don't know where these, I don't know where the people are. I can't talk to them. I can't hear from them. I can't share things with them. And that is what, for me, it feels like it's missing. And I, there's almost a part of me that will take the outrage and take the, all that stuff that comes with it for that sense of connection. This goes back to an experiment that B.F. Skinner did back in the 1930s. I don't know if you heard about those. Uh, he's a psychologist and did experiments with the mouse in the, the cage where they gave him the lever. So the mouse was given the, the lever, pressed the lever, a pellet of food would come out, the mouse would be satiated by the food, go back and do mouse stuff till it felt hungry again. That's a stressless life and it's kind of nice it is. But B.F. Skinner, what he did was he created another element to this as well called a variance. So now every time the mouse pressed the lever, there was either half a pellet of food, no food, or maybe there was a pellet. He just never knew the mouse didn't anytime press the lever. So consequently, what would the mouse do all day? It would press the lever. And it's the same concept as if you went to your fridge and you opened up your fridge right now and you looked inside, there was a lemon meringue pie and you went, my God, lemon meringue pie, love that. And you sat down and you thought about this for 15 minutes. You went back, I better check again. But the next time you opened up the fridge, there was six cream donuts and you went, oh, and you sat down and next time you went back up after 15 minutes, you checked and there was nothing in there. But this thought of the lemon meringue pie and the six cream donuts made it, you think 15 minutes later, I better check again, even though there was nothing last time and you find it was six cans of Coke or maybe for a lot of times there's nothing there at all. We keep going back to the fridge day uh, all, all day long. And that's like us. So if you were to go to your phone, you'd probably found on your phone, there's a number of pickups that you, how many times do you think you picked oh, up your phone easily. yesterday? I can't, I can't do it because I know I'll be horrified if I look at my screen time report. Yeah. So when I do this with, with groups, I ask them to see how, long, how many times they picked up their phone yesterday and they'll range from anything between 20 to 50. So they say, I probably 20 times yesterday, 50 maybe. And the average is 150. And that's the low end of it too as well. So we're picking up this phone and you can actually find if you've got an Apple um, iPhone, it will tell you how many times you got notifications compared to how many times you picked it up. So I might've got 18 notifications, but I picked my phone up 62 times. So take 18 from 62 and you work out for 44 times or whatever, you know, there was no reason for me to pick up the phone. I just picked it up. And yet we're all like that. And that's the same with Twitter. It's a thing called the maybe effect. And the maybe effect is the same experience that you're going to get anytime you go to an airport, you're going on holiday. You know the way that you're going to wait for two or three days? That buildup of the thoughts of what the place might be like, what the experience, the food, all the, you know, you just don't know what it's going to be like. It's the anticipation. And airports know that. So when you arrive to an airport, they'll know we can hack up the prices of anything here. The sandwich is going to be dear. The food's going to be dear. Because when you're in this dopamine drop feeling of maybe this anticipation, you're willing to pay. That's like if you were to get a kid who was playing FIFA in his bedroom or fortnight and get his mother to come up and sign a contract, he would sign anything just to be allowed to play another uh, extra hour or two or get to an extra level on any of those games. It's that maybe effect causes us to do that. And it's quite addictive. And it happens to you every single time that you go onto Twitter because we no longer hunt anymore for food, but now we hunt for information. And we hunt through information and we hunt for shopping. And you're getting caught into that. The idea that the, the hunt feels good. The info is out there. Um, and, and we're constantly searching for it all the time as well. There's a thing, Sean Aker. Uh, Sean Aker is a, a happiness expert. He's a Harvard professor. He talks about the 22nd rule. And the 22nd rule is if you can make something easier, you're more likely to do it. But if you can make something 20 seconds more difficult, the less likely you are to do it. So one of the things I do is I haven't got my toaster sitting on top of my kitchen counter because I know if I have my toaster on the top, what happens? I'm making toast. And at the end of the year, apparently people with toasters on the top of their counter are six pounds heavier at the end of the year than people that don't. So mine is underneath. 
So I only take it out when I need it. So it's those simple things. And Sean Aker goes as far as taking his batteries out of his TV control because he reckoned every time he sat down to watch TV, sat down on the couch, he was turning on the TV rather than reading a book. So now he takes the batteries out, puts them in another room. It's 20 seconds harder to get there. And like, I can, I'm thinking of the panic I felt this morning when I realized my phone wasn't charging. The battery looked like it died. All my contacts were on there. Everybody who wanted to ring me couldn't get through because we've no other alternatives. But yeah, when the phones are well, we should find ways to be able to leave our phones behind and just connect with people on a real sort of level without the need to constantly look. Like I see with parents just constantly looking at the phones, even with them, with their kids, the kids are learning these, this is a, what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years time. And I don't want to sound like I'm an old footy duddy. I've got to remember I'm a futurist. That's one of my strengths. I've got lots of things with 16 million lights in the house that press a button <laughs> and it, it activates this and it's lovely. But yeah, I think our being able to stand back from technology and just reconnect with humanity, the more we can do that, I think the more happiness that come into our lives. So there you go. How can people um, follow you and um, bask in, the, in the, the warmth of your glow? Well, don't follow me. There you go. Please don't follow me ever because you're only going to make my life more anxious because I'm going to have to reply back to you and I'm going to have to follow you back. So let's get rid of all that. In all the years of podcasting uh, and editing, that is the first time I've ever heard that response. Wonderful. Yeah, I don't want to be followed. Um, no, this sounds terrible as if it's. Leave me like alone. People. Yeah, no, save that, yourself. The pressures, the, the pressures in life are, seem to be enough. But yeah, you can follow me at Stephen at wakeup.ie or just Stephen Dark, and I'm, I'm out there somewhere. I probably don't do enough on the internet because I'm too busy sort of wanting to enjoy life. The sun is shining at the moment. Do you know what I'm going to do now, Mark? I'm going to leave you after this and I'm going to take my beautiful guitar. There's a little part that needs to be adjusted and I'm going to have to bring it down to the guitar shop. And I'm going to talk to Andy in the guitar shop about music and about guitars and about stuff that makes us happy. And he's hopefully going to fix my guitar uh, with a quick fix. I'm going to come home and I'm going to play guitar later. <laughs> <laughs>